We interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. Hamburgers, the cornerstone of any nutritious breakfast. What's the deal with airplane food? I'm Julia Child. Bon appetit. This is the Truth Ron Rib Podcast. Alrighty. Welcome to the first episode of the True Prime Rib Podcast. I'm Tiernan, and I'll be your history guide and food buff. Accompanying me today is the wonderful Dana. Hello, hello. To uh, give some background on why we started this podcast, we have to go back. Ever since I could remember, I've had a strong obsession with food, and so much so that I began cooking when I was just five years old with my mom. Well, 22 years later, it's now my career, and my love and passion for eating and cooking not only keeps the lights on for us, but it's pretty much what brought Dana and I together, and my uh, crack ja- Cracker Jack research team as well. Uh, Dana, what made you want to do a podcast on food and history? Just like you, I've always been a lover of food. I grew up cooking at a very young age with my mom, too. I've also just been a history buff my entire life, and one of the things that I've always found fascinating and think about on a daily basis is how we got our food, where we got our food, how many people died in the pursuit of food. So I think that's one of the things that really kind of pushed us into the direction of this podcast, and I'm really, really, really excited to see what comes of it. And I'm sure, like, all those people on Twitter are like, does somebody really just suck a cow titty, like, look at that thing and be like, damn. I gotta suck that thing. Yeah. Well, and somebody probably did. We've all had questions like that, and that's kind of why we started this, is so we can find those the answers to those questions, and like just see if it's as ridiculous as it sounds as someone just walking up to a cow and sucking an udder. (laughs) But uh, for more uh, questions and more. Yeah, sometimes we're left with more questions and less answers, but uh, it's always funny to give our findings. Well, hopefully but, uh, we'll be able to find some fantastic answers for our, ourselves and our listeners. Oh, absolutely. Uh, now that we've given you a little bit of our history, it's time to jump into the actual history. And the, today we're covering from the dawn of humanity, all of their eating habits, and into the Stone Age. And as the life cycle goes, things need to eat, things need to drink, and things need to sleep, but not necessarily in similar fashions. What one organism would need, others don't. Maybe they can't even process those uh, things that one would need the same way, or if at all. Like uh, celiacs, can't do gluten. All those Karens with the fad diets, just don't want to do gluten. (laughs) For as long as the homogeneous has existed, though, it has been theorized that we are split into a hunter-gatherer existence. Or rather, gatherer-hunterer existence. These groups lived during the prehistoric times and were nomadic in nature. And there isn't exact data when it happened, but it is during this time that these hominids harnessed the power of fire and used it for their early forms of cooking. Most notably, charred bones and old fire pits that we have found in archaeological digs and like just trace amounts of cooking like you'd see roasted like root vegetable leftovers and i'm not even sure how they were preserved over this amount of time that like i couldn't find that little evidence of detail but there have been several uh findings of this of cooking of ancient cooking 
Yeah, like just pretty much whatever they could get their hands on. They also had a complex knowledge of fauna, as well as early forms of tool and technology they used for their intrapersonal and domestic purposes. And one of our main episode focuses is going to be how fire was introduced and the eventual influence it would have on the human race. And as we all know, fire has been symbolic for the human species for forever. Whether it were to bring warmth, comfort, light, or like a line of defense. It also symbolizes our food in some primitive way. As our species has adapted over the ages, we have become the only species to cook its food. And I can't think of any species, actually, if I were to give a counter-argument that may have stumbled across fire and done the same thing. The only one that I could potentially think of is some species of monkey in the same way they have, like monkeys and elephants, for example, have used um, techniques to ferment fruit so that they can get drunk off them. There may have been species that have used um, fire, but if they have, they've probably died out fairly quickly. I know there are species of monkeys who have been found to use tools to crack open um, shellfish the way that otters do. Yeah, of course. The the know-how and the ability to use it is there. It's just... I think the instinct of staying away from fire because it can literally burn down everything you know and love yeah. is pretty ingrained into most animals, and I don't blame them. Like, I don't understand why we play with fireworks when literally a gender reveal set half of California on fire. And killed people. That couple is now being charged with manslaughter. Yes, yes, that was a, a ridiculous thing, but uh, yeah, no. I would run away from fire, too, if I wasn't already privy to it. You would if it was in large quantities. Yeah. Uh, getting back to the topic at hand, uh, it from way back when, a man known as James Boswell once said, Beasts have memory, judgment, faculties, and passions of the mind, but no beast is a cook, which defined the essence of modern humanity today. But, you know, back then, they weren't beasts. They were only just discovering their humanity, though, and also discovering fire. Harvard professor and primatologist Richard Wrangham describes his experience studying apes and chimpanzees and his ability of trying to live off of their diet. He said that they would eat raw fibrous leaves and fruits, and it proved almost impossible for him or a human to do as... We just don't have the means anymore to have the same kind of diet they do because we would either get extremely ill from lack of uh, nutrient absorption or just straight up starve to death from just the amount of energy it takes to eat these fruits and leaves. Rangham also developed a theory that fire and using it to cook became the separation of human and animal, and doing so has ingrained cooking into our genetic and biological code. He also went on to point out the differences between a modern-day man and an ape and their dietary restrictions as well. Back in the day, you could see that gorillas had very, very large chests and pelvises used to home a spacious gut 
as well as a long protruding face that hides long rows of teeth used for gnashing and grinding things like bark and hardy substances. Now taking a look at the human physique though, we can draw some similarities between the species, but the features began to minimize and shrink over the years. We adapted ourselves for softer materials and a less raw diet. The change in size we have been able to pinpoint at Homo phobicus. We can see that jaw size has begun to shrink. And then traced to Homo erectus, we can see that brain size increases, which uh, pretty much accelerates us towards Homo sapien and on to present-day man. The brain itself, being the greedy sack of gray matter, always, always, always needs a massive amount of energy to function. With its increase in size and a way to feed the brain without exerting too much energy on digestion, we... Uh, we were able to, you know, excel with fire and science. Cook cooked food provided that soft texture we needed so we could eat with little effort. And ultimately, we grew as a species, and it would later on uh, introduce the food craze as we love today. Things like Taco Tuesday and... Margarita Monday. Although that's not a food, that's just a drink. Never mind. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that, that fire Lime. somehow hey, comes into that. You limes. have to toast the barrels for the tequila. You get limes. There's still food in it. Yeah, it's it's liquid food for uh, <laughs> people on the go. Just remember that, all our viewers. Yeah. For those of you who uh, don't like to eat and just only like to drink. Margarita Mondays that. are for you. Yeah, we call that the liquid diet. But, of course, we've given the basic look of the evolution of man and how food has changed only slightly, but we need to take a step back yet again to the Paleolithic era and the ages following to really uh, get an idea of how eating evolved. Hunter-gatherer has always been the narrative for us since grade school, at least for... I don't know, the last however long. I don't know how it is nowadays. I haven't <laughs> been in school for the last almost... Uh, Let's not date eight. ourselves here. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, but um, I've known it that way, but I don't see it that way anymore. Uh, the men would go out to hunt. Women would forage for the edible plants. But uh, scientists have found that uh, it's an outdated idea, and some people find it offensive. But way back when, it was an I, I, abundant ideal. It is believed that some of the earliest hominids of Africa, going back to two million years ago, were the first group of hunter-gatherers. Um, yeah, the Homo erectus, with their adaptations of larger brain and shorter digestive system, allowed their consumption of meat to increase. It was also them to be amongst the first to learn how to walk very long distances. And you think to yourself walk long distances how's that a skill like <laughs> i can walk long distances hell i i i hiked an eight hour hike and it's like yeah you did because you had the means to do that not necessarily the same story people would try to stay within their locale as much as possible and do very little because uh they don't uh 
they didn't necessarily have the energy to be able to get around and it was also scary to leave the area that you were from because you didn't know what was what else was out there could have been exactly. another tribe it could have been another group of animals that you've never come across before that could be pack animals like wolves would hunt you down and kill you off you don't know what's out there so yeah people would generally stay in their areas as a means of protection well thankfully this ability to walk long distances gave rise to nomads and eventually these nomads would break into europe and asia as panagia was around at this time well actually no scratch that it wasn't that's a lie Hunting and gathering, though, would last for the next two million years with little change, though. Technology may have advanced ever so slightly, found a new way to tie a knot, maybe you use a different kind of stone because it's hardier. But on the whole, you're just using sticks and rocks. But it wasn't all rocks. It wasn't until approximately 10,000 BC, though, that Homo sapiens would break off from their ancestors and settle down into communities and set up farms and villages. As for technological advances that led to modern-day cooking, it all started in the Paleolithic era, when early humans began to craft stone tools and contained fire for the express purpose of cooking and warding off predators. There is controversy, though, over when it really started, but evidence suggests that hearths, 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 fireplaces, however you guys want to say it, I say hearth, are at least 800,000 years old and direct heat extends to approximately a million years ago. As time went on, stone began to be put on the back burner and more sophisticated tools would come about. Tools like fish hooks, harpoons, bows, arrows, and domestic tools such as needles for sewing. The Homo sapien was responsible for intricate tools, which allowed them to create more effective shelter, better clothing. It allowed them to really, really expand their diets. Covering culture and technology, let's kind of delve into the food part. And I mean, in the early stages, there's not really much to get at because... There wasn't really much available except for whatever they could source. It was a fi- it was a find and forage mentality. You beggars can't be choosers sort of thing. You eat whatever you can get. So, as we evolved, we would have moved away from the raw foods like grass, tubers, fibrous fruits, seeds, nuts. And uh, thanks to scientists and soft tissue examination and DNA tracking, we were able to extrapolate data on the prehistoric diet that gave us a more detailed look at how our ancestors would eat on the daily. And one thing they were able to conclude as well, though, is all the raw vegetables and fruits that were ate back then would lead to a uh, massive lack of vitamin, like causing deficits and a very like shitty diet so to speak like major vitamin deficiencies can cause catastrophic effects on the body the biggest one everyone knows and it's probably because everyone loves pirates scurvy naval history scurvy is a big one if you don't get enough vitamin c 
that was a, a disease that ran rampant in way back when. Well, sourcing things that have vitamin C was very difficult as they only grow in certain areas of the world. And the fruits we have today may not have been around at all. So exactly, like we have no real, uh, no real knowledge on all the fruits and vegetables that existed. We have inklings of things that may have evolved since then. So, like, definitely, like potatoes have been around in some form or another as a tuber. Yes, in some capacity, it's always been around. Exactly. Meat, however, way different story. If we could get it, we would eat it. If it were fish or insects, any small or large game, like, I don't know. The amount of uh, protein that it gave us was so important. Your small game would be like the saber-toothed turkey or... uh, (laughs) The saber-toothed turkey. (laughs) Yeah, no, they were dangerous. Wait a minute, that's a thing? No, that's not a thing. (laughs) Could you imagine? You're just hey, man. Geese have teeth. Yeah, geese do have teeth, but do they have saber teeth? Ah, have you seen their teeth? They're Uh, more more like like razors, but still, that's still terrifying. You've got your favorite stick with a stone tied to it, and all of a sudden you hear gobble gobble in the underbrush, and the hair on the back of your neck raises, and all of a sudden this like turkey that looks like a peacock just just like a normal turkey but but like peacock size massive fangs on it for no reason just comes flying out of the bush and all you hear is and you're like ah shit like it's do or die now like we're thanksgiving even though i don't know what that is has come early you just made my ornithophobia so much worse (laughs) wasn't already afraid of birds but thanks that's that's just how it goes. But yeah, um, we didn't really have a choice on what kind of meat we were getting, and that often led to us uh, scavenging carrion, which would be an animal carcass, rotting animal flesh and meat. And in doing so, uh, that kind of led to uh, us develop or uh, getting a lot of foodborne illnesses that usually resulted in death. And it could be anything from like Listeria and or a prehistoric version of it at least, or pretty much just shitting yourself to death because of being so sick. So just detrimental food poisoning, which you can pretty still much. die from, by the way. Uh, like there were some instances where they were able to process it and come out fine on the other end, but the kill might have been a lot fresher than they thought. Versus, like, they'd maybe come upon one that was baking in the hot savannah heat, wherever they may be, like, and just, like, really, really baked, you know, like, you find that, uh, that piece of, uh, meat you left out because you were defrosting it and you went to do something, you come back and it's, like, all dried out and gross and starting to smell a little. That, but, like, times ten on crack that sounds horrifying yeah i'm assuming it didn't taste good either well it wasn't until neanderthals emerged that we truly began the cooking part of our food and that dates between 250,000 to 120,000 years ago 
It was also around this era that we began to actually hunt our large game, like, strategically. And we have been able to prove this with sites in Spain with butchered elephant remains. So they found uh, large mammoth bones, essentially, that had butchering marks on it. So they were carving the meat off the bones and left little indentations that, like, coincided with how you would take meat off of a bone. Which is really cool. Yeah. No, like, the fact that we were able to figure that out is just mind-blowing. Especially an animal that size. Like, could you imagine what that would yield, especially in terms of, like, its hide and its hair? The warmth and clothing that they would have been able to create from that would have been... Oh, absolutely. ...critical to survival at that time. Well, thankfully, the Homo sapiens arrived... Or, I guess, like to really get specific with it. It was known as the Cro-Magnon Man. They started using very, very complex hunting strategies. And a good, uh, a good example is the head-smashed-in buffalo jump. Or, as the Blackfoot tribe call it, the Estipa Skikikini Colts, which is a hunting ground in Alberta, Canada where the indigenous folks, persons, sorry, of the land would run large groups of buffalo off a high cliff and pretty much run them to their death, where they would fall below and just smash their head off the rocks, and they would go and gather the remains. But how they, they did it was pretty interesting. So they had some buffalo skins, and they would try and preserve as much of, like, the look of the buffalo as possible, so that they could amble up around the buffalo. They would ingrain like themselves them. into the herd. Yeah, they would become one with the herd. Yep. And uh, when it was time to uh, like go and give her all she's got, they would pop out and the rest of the hunting party would surround them and kind of herd them off the cliff where others were waiting to blow to uh, collect the kill. So what would end up happening is they are a very pack-driven species they have a leader and they will follow that leader and because they were being surrounded and driven towards the cliff face the leader would head towards the only space that was safe for them to go without knowing that there was a cliff over there because bison have terrible 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 eyesight they are also extremely top-heavy. If you have ever looked at a bison, you understand what I'm saying. If you haven't, please pause now and go to Google and look up a bison, B-I-S-O-N, or a buffalo. They're the same creature, just different names. They are also, extremely top-heavy. They're top Like, the fact I don't... I look at them and I don't understand how their back end stays down when their front end is that heavy. But They're one of the only animals in the animal kingdom that skips leg day. <laughs> no, because they have all chest day. Exactly. So they would get to the edge of the cliff, realize what that... what Chris Hemsworth looks like right now. Would realize that... Wow. <laughs> that was so much tea. <laughs> Anyways, they would get to the edge of a cliff, realize that it was the edge of a cliff, and they would stop... But because the herd was coming up behind, they would topple each other over the edge. 
So not all of the herd would go over, only some of them would once they realized what had happened and they would divert and go along the cliff face and eventually get away. I also want to make a little listener's note, uh, if we have anyone of First Nations, uh, definitely correct me on my pronunciation. Yes, like I, f- I found one, and even then I still stumbled over it, because it's a lot of uh, ski-ki-ki-ki-ni, like... There's a, there's a lot of eyes, and if we mispronounce it, we are deeply sorry. I am a Métis person. And I struggle very, very much with pronouncing a lot of First Nations names. So, um, yes, please be patient with us in um, our white people way of pronouncing First Nations names. We are genuinely and sincerely trying our best. Yeah, And we like to be factually correct. So if it ever happens that we mispronounce anything, it doesn't even matter if it's First Nations. Anybody who wants to uh, chime in and say, hey... That was wrong? Absolutely. Please do. Madly appreciate that. So with them running the bison off, they would uh, collect the kills at the bottom of the cliff after everything was all said and done. They would strip the bison of everything that they could use. All of the meat, which if they couldn't cook it that day, would be preserved in some ways. A lot of us know it as beef jerky is a, a big staple. Um pelts fashioned into clothing garments for the winter specifically for prairie living because the winters do get really really shitty also a lot of also a lot of the hides would be used for structures like teepees so if you've ever seen a proper teepee constructed it is used with animal hide and then there would be other things that they take for aphrodisiacs like it wasn't all of the tribes, but I've had a few that I've had friends that are parts of those tribes that say they would uh, use the testicles and sometimes the penis as aphrodisiacs because they felt like they were gaining the bull, like bull bison's uh, sexual vigor, so to speak, and they would try to use that as a way to encourage having children. That's a as tradition well as, that's been used in many cultures across the planet. Of course, yeah. And then anything that they couldn't use got offered to their uh, version of Mother Earth, so to speak. And if not, so many things were... at No part was ever wasted. The bladder of all of these animals were used as canteens. So they would clean them in whatever way they cleaned them. And then they'd fill them with water and use them for canteens because they were obviously meant to store a tremendous amount of fluid and that provided them something to can, like keep water if they were away from home for a long period of time. I mean, it only makes sense. A giant thing that stores pee should pretty much store water. It worked. It worked very well. And... Um, oh, I, I don't doubt. For those who have been to the Head Smashed in Buffalo Jump Museum, um, if you have the opportunity and are, and are in southern Alberta, I would highly recommend going. It is a fantastic and fascinating place. You get to see some of the old ways that they had these. And there are some, like, 
ancient versions of these um, parts of the animal that they would use daily. It's it's so amazing how much was always used and that the First Nations people consistently and continuously would honor the animals and thank them for their sacrifice so that we still had the opportunity to continue to live. Yeah. Well, there. this is going to be a loop back, and for good reason. So another hunting technique. Pause for dramatic effect. Was the ability to walk long distances. <laughs> Early humans used this ability to outlast their prey and pretty much walk them to death as a hunting strategy. They would use their patience and this newfound energy that they suddenly had to be able to walk for hours on end until whatever it was they were seeking out or hunting just got so exhausted it would lay down and die. And from like an animal point of view, honestly, that's that's terrifying. It's it's your own little personal hell of Michael Myers. Oh no! Just just imagine you're ch- chilling out, Max, and relaxing, all cool, uh, eating some leaves, and all of a sudden, Grimace, the walking purple McNugget, just starts like he's just like oh 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 he's just rolling up on you, and you're just like holy shit. What is that purple monstrosity? You jump up, you fucking run. Purple McNuggets out of sight, and you just go back to munching on leaves. Give it an hour, maybe two. Suddenly, Mr. McNugget comes strolling over the hill again. Just, mm, mm, yeah. Oh, no. And he's got the determination in his eyes only rivaled by the Terminator. Like, just, you see... You see malice. He's going to do bad things to you. So you run double the distance now, thinking that surely Mr. Purple Man couldn't possibly have gotten you here. Oh no, who else? But Grimace, the fuel of nightmares, comes trudging up once again. Oh no! But you've run yourself so ragged that now you've got no energy, no stamina, and you pretty much just lay down and accept that you are the one who is going to become the McNugget. So like literally, let that you're my McNugget for a bit. That's terrifying. No, that it genuinely is. sounds like some Michael Myers. Like you used it perfectly. That sounds like some Michael Myers shit. Like that sounds wholly terrifying. Yeah, just kind of trying to soften the terror with a childhood icon. No, that just made it worse. Weird purple McNugget. No, no, oh no, it made it worse. <laughs> well. Aside from walking things to death and running things off cliffs, (laughs) like, it didn't just exist in those two realms. Like, it got a little better. We'd hunt kind of like raptors and wolves did, split up, you know, circle around, trap them, give them nowhere to go, and then just literally kill them. Like, they became so well-refined, but the problem wasn't the hunting techniques, so to speak. Uh, it was, uh, we would run into the fact that we started hunting game that was far too large for us to harvest all of it and move all the meat, because, uh, 
Have you ever tried to move like a moose after you've like stripped it down? It's heavy and they didn't always have carcass sleds and things like that to uh, move. So ch good chunks of meat would go to waste and a lot of effort would be expended just to be able to get that meat. So it was a, it was a real issue. So we needed to figure out a, a better, easier, more effective way to get food. Well, we need to, uh, like, take a big leap 12,000 years into the future from that point on into the Neolithic Age. And it was uh, during this age that the nomadic nature would begin to fade and uh, we'd start to build our little communities. We'd start domesticating animals and breeding them. We'd start to farm and develop agriculture. And for the first time ever in the in the history of humanity we take the first step from the hunting and gathering and i t we take a step towards becoming the agrarian society we have become today change wasn't uh overnight though it took a long time still for us as a society to develop conventional farming techniques as well as uh being able to properly diagnose and treat diseases that would spawn in our livestock as well as diseases that would uh, come from those livestock too like mad cow disease and uh, once we obtained these means it spurred uh, growth of early civilizations most notably that we all know is mesopotamia which occupied the northern region of the fertile crescent the same area is now the southern part of Iraq. Earliest records show that the inhabitants of Mesopotamia, or the Sumerian, were one of the first civilizations on Earth to emerge alongside ancient China, ancient Egypt, the Minoans, uh, I might butcher this, but the Karl Supe, and the Indus Valley civilization. But we're focusing on Mesopotamia specifically because they had some uh, good discoveries way back when. In Sumeria, dating back to early 5000 BC, agricultural lifestyle began to come to fruition and was adopted. And we've actually found certain pictographs that have been uncovered that are indicative of the fact that Sumerians and Mesopotamians brought about modern techniques like organized irrigation and large-scale land cultivation through the plow. And they also had, quote-unquote, specialized labor forces, which, you know, is a, a fancy word for slave. Yeah, I was going to say slavery. And uh, it was these specialized labor forces which tended the fields under bureaucratic control. Uh, we also had pictographs that depicted that livestock were domesticated, and more specifically, oxen being beasts of labor, equids, like horse and mules, being used for transport, and bovine, o ovis, and porcine, which are cow, sheep, and pig, usually were bred for slaughter and butchery. But above that, we would still be hunting things... Uh, surrounding our little communities things like our local wildlife such as gazelle 
all types of fowl from pheasants and whatnot or whatever was in that area, as well as turkeys, chickens, as well as fish that we could uh, get out of the irrigation canals that we created. It wasn't the domestication of farm animals, though, that brought about our bustling urban centers we have today. Believe it or not, uh, the use of irrigation is what really kicked us off. And it, there are records showing that at least 89% of populations were around the city center. And the earliest form of irrigation was a shaduf, or a well pole. And for anyone who is a little confused by either of those terms, basically it's the rope attached to a bucket that you dip into a well and pull it back up. It's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah, a well pole. Well, after that, other inventions would quickly follow for irrigation, things like canals, channels, dikes, weirs, and reservoirs. And this infrastructure as well would actually create jobs and as well as a class system, which is kind of silly at this point in time, but it's true. A working class would come about because they would have to repair the canals and the channels and continuously filter out any silt that got in them. They also had survey stones and boundaries for their channels that would need to be replaced. And it's mostly things that got knocked over by the wind or like local uh, local hoodlums fucking with it because... High tides. Yeah, high tides. Like, doesn't matter. Like, the survey stones would get knocked out. It was just basically stacked rocks at, at its, uh, like, core. And it got better from there on in, but... That's really where it started. And uh, this really was the first introduction to feudal slave labor because uh, the rich weren't, weren't expected to work. They were exempt, even if it was necessary to the continuation of their society and way of life. So that uh, rich man capitalist mindset has been around for longer than we thought. But these irrigation canals were important because they allowed uh, the Sumerians to grow all of the cereal crops that were uh, abundant in their land, as well as things like chickpeas, lentils, dates, onions, garlic, lettuce, leeks, and mustard, which is delicious. Gotta love me some mustard. So glad that... Especially that grainy Dijon mustard. Exactly. I, uh, I fuck with mustard. Except for honey mustard. I don't fuck with honey mustard. I think no, it's No, honey mustard is shit. I don't like honey mustard because mustard is supposed to be sour and tangy. And, and they savory. Take, they take all of that and just shit on its very being by adding a shitload of honey to it. And it just tastes like honey with a dollop of mustard in it, maybe. So, yeah. Uh, I'm very opinionated when it comes to all things honey sauce. But... Uh, my uh, my opinions aside, uh, let's get back to uh, the history <laughs> at hand. All of this agricultural advancement happening made a heavy reliance on all the crops and the farming of the land, seeing as how it was low risk, fairly easy. Why not? Like, you don't have to go out and fight animals and possibly die. All you gotta do is walk out water some dirt and look at the sun pick some weeds and you know like life's good but it wasn't as simple as that though there was massive crop failure 
and that happened frequently and it would cause massive periods of famine and death and honestly the reliance on a single crop that was working so well led to massive undernourishment and again that lack of essential of vitamins leading to those deficits and nutrients that we needed like we've been able to uncover that starvation and that deficiency were very large like common killers amongst first civilizations it was a it was a rampant problem so you know yes that was definitely a major catalyst for death and how our population struggled to survive so having a well-balanced diet isn't just some buzzword you hear like it's actually it is necessary like you need to really get all your vitamins in your irons and like your potassiums because uh leaving one out leads to serious serious issues shout out to all the anemic listeners out there holla but you know there was one good crop dependency that came out of all of this and for anyone out there who loves to crack a cold one after a long day or for those who uh, have the common saying saturday is for the boys thank you join me in raising a can or a glass to the sumerians because thanks to them beer would not have been a globally popular beverage can't say globally and popular in like rapid succession i always say globally and it just sounds like stupid <laughs> shit coming out of my mouth no, i love it um <laughs> thankfully from their discovery of beer they were one of the first beer consuming societies with their massive fields of cereal crops and to you to those who saying well what's a cereal crop well it's barley wheat rye like things you'd like grains things you'd turn into a cereal beer that kind of thing and that's what they would do most often their brewed drinks would uh contain wheat or barley or a mixture of some of the grains so not only were these uh, crops essential to their survival they were also essential to their like societal importance and you know getting down and getting dirty like you forgot one of the quintessential parts of beer and a cereal grain hops i'm not sure if they had hops during that time okay touche they might have uh it didn't say everything i read up on about it didn't mention any sort of hops so like the first iterations may not have had hops let me look it up right now like if, if you can find anything or if grain. anyone themselves know like when the first introduction of hops was into beer i would i would love to hear that and uh i will Ah. uh, give the email you can reach us at for the podcast at the end of the show because there was also a couple other ones you forgot you forgot oats corn and rice yeah no i'm just or maize maize for corn i'm most specifically talking about what the sumerians grew oh okay my apologies like there's tons of cereal crops for sure but like what yeah they yeah had. yeah yeah but that's that's specifically what they grew was wheat barley and rye was it rye rye and yeah like there probably soon be, would become others but those were the main ones that they had okay um well you know like the importance of partying and having beer 
was so essential to the Sumerians that they actually have it included in their uh, their texts that could be considered religious texts. Um, it's known as the Epics of Gilgamesh. They are the earliest surviving quote-unquote notable literature, as well as the second oldest religious text, the Pyramid Texts being the first. And to anyone who is super heavy into mythology and like loves reading about Zeus and Odin and all that shit, I uh, I definitely say give this. Uh, there's a book out there called The Epics of Gilgamesh. It's probably 146 pages, really short read. Uh, it's really interesting. It gives a huge look into the way of life of Mesopotamia and like their ideals. Um, but in reference to beer in these poems, there was a. Uh, character in there named Enkidu who was entreated to the drinks and the food of Gilgamesh's people and it says quote drink the beer as is the custom of the land and Enkidu drank the beer seven jugs and became expansive with song and with joy so really it was the first iteration of Saturdays for the boys Gilgamesh and Enkidu just got... People were getting drunk. Yeah, they were getting crunk off their faces. They were, like, out, like, troweling for uh, ladies of the night. It was, uh... It was a joyous time. It was was a joyous time. No caution was thrown to the wind at at that point. But alongside the discovery of beer, Mesopotamia was also the first to introduce a farmer's almanac. And they had a small clay tablet with 35 lines etched into it describing farming practices, specifically what worked for them. And the farmer who inscribed these practices said that it was not his own knowledge that he put onto it, but rather the degree, the decree of the god Ninurta, the son and true farmer of Sumerian deity Enlil. And the tablet, very paraphrased because it goes on forever, reads flood the fields after the spring equinox by the canals and drain them have the oxen trample the grounds to kill the local fauna drag pickaxes through the dirt and dry the soil plow harrow and rake the ground thrice and then pulverize it with a mattock spread your seed tend to the sprouts and harvest in the spring before the next cycle well damn so yeah, it gave you like that's a pretty like powerful thing to read, and it's farming. Well, it, but it sounds so beautiful and poetic. It's not as poetic as that. Like that is very very paraphrased. Like it is very uh, instructional. Like it's like a YouTube DIY on a clay tablet of how to how to farm a field basically. But it yeah, but it's still really cool. It is cool. Like the fact that that exists and it's like i've always wondered it's like where did the first farmer's almanac start well there you go that's where it started i answered one of my so that book you see in the grocery store that says the farmer's almanac that comes out every year that's where it started friends it's it's kind of sad though you see a farmer's almanac right next to people's magazine and reader's digest yeah, that is sad. I wonder how ancient mesopotamians feel about having their guide to cultivating the planet right next to what 
what celebrity was wearing today and what Harry and Meghan are doing next. Yeah, no, they would pick one up and be like, what the fuck's a Bradgelina? <laughs> I, I was just looking to read up some up on some uh, you know some good beer making tips and how to how to keep the sheep out of my field. I don't. I want to know how to grow some cucumbers, not what Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck are doing now. I don't want to know which friend's character I am. I know which <laughs> friend's character I am. I'm a Phoebe. <laughs> you are a Phoebe. Does that make me a Joey? It could. Oh. Well. No, you're more a Chandler. I'm a bunch of them. I'm a mixture. Later on in the uh, history timeline of Mesopotamia, though, we got our basic understanding of metallurgy, and that would uh, kickstart the Bronze Age for civilizations. We quickly had the use of metals for our tools, which would allow farmers to till and sow the land more deeply than we thought was possible. Weapons would begin to be developed more heartily, and that made hunting a little more effortless. But it also made warfare also more uh, more advanced and more able to uh, expand the borders of your territory. It caused the growth of civilizations, and it didn't stop there. They would only become refined more and more, and soon after that, the discovery of iron would pretty much double the efficiency of whatever they had already discovered. So bronze, while being better than stone, was still pretty soft metal in comparison to iron, and the hardiness of iron allowed for tougher tools, New scientific inventions and methods, most, like, a good one would be, uh, the potter's wheel. Some of you may be like, well, how does that have to do with iron? Like, the components, gears that make it up, they wouldn't burn out as fast. You didn't have to have someone just cranking a crank for you. You could have basically your own little, uh, little area. So iron made us really, really jump into the future of into individualistic work and self-sufficiency yeah we would be able to branch off and actually again create more jobs and be able to work alone as opposed to working in a bigger group and on the flip side again with hardier tools meant hardier weapons which meant much bloodier warfare joy yeah so with uh, the iron age it meant that warfare and globalization were just on the horizon for us cannons and guns would uh, start making their debut ships would uh, become able to endure the harsh seas and oceans and uh, pretty much spit in the face of poseidon sometimes but uh, food culture and religion would begin to spread to those neighboring civilizations as well Border wars and power struggles would break out everywhere. We would have the biggest global influence event we would seen, and that would be Roman Catholicism spreading to most of Europe and on towards other nations beyond their grasp. And that's where we'll really start our next episode with the uh, the rise and fall of the medieval ages and all of the food discoveries that come with it. I will be your host on the next episode. 
So you'll be hearing not Tiernan's lovely voice, but mine. Yes, we will be. Throughout a deep dive into the medieval ages, I may start touching on the Renaissance era, but that I feel is a component that will probably be its whole own episode. It, it might be. We'll see how that. Uh, an episode, so. Probably. We'll see how my deep dive goes over the next few days, but we look forward to your continued listening and thank you for your time spent with us on this episode. Yeah, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. I hope that our journey of looking into all of this knowledge on food and history is very captivating for you as it was for us. Big thanks to everyone that helped either do some research or helped uh, really organize our thoughts and scripts and all the effort put into this episode. And uh, as I said before, if you'd like to send us any fun facts about food or history that didn't get covered, anything we might have mispronounced, might have missed, like any of that, feel free to drop us an email at trueprimepod at gmail.com. That's T-R-U-E-P-R-I-M-E-P-O-D at gmail.com. And we do have a Patreon, but for now, it's, uh, for the most part, inactive. All uh, episodes are free, but as we continue to grow, you can check out our Patreon for when we do patron-exclusive content, as well as if there's an introduction of merchandise, and just, like, anything that keeps you guys in the loop. So, uh... I want to thank you for being our host this evening and spending, um, as someone who lives with you, I got to see how much time you worked on that. You spent days and hours working on this content, and I really appreciate it. I can't speak for the viewers, but I want to thank you for taking that time. No problem. Um, Go out and spread your knowledge to the world about food and always tune in to find out more and continue spreading that information and even uh, share share our uh, podcast with Share other and people. like. Yes. Share, like, and subscribe. Yeah, like, smash that fucking bell. Diddly, diddly. Uh, but yeah, you know. Thanks for joining us. Have a good night. Bye-bye. <laughs>